If you worship team, beautiful. Let's open the word of God, please, to Acts chapter 13, verse 14. Make it verse, yeah, verse 14. That'd be good. You know, modern psychology tells us that one of the most beautiful words in any language is a person's own name. I mean, we like ourselves so much that over a period of time we kind of fall in love with our name. Uh, biblical theology tells us that one of the most beautiful and important words in every language is forgiveness. I mean, think about it. Think, think of the relief of doing something that was selfish, stupid, lazy, sinful, that hurt somebody, that hindered somebody, and the joy when that person, rather than just confronting you, says, I forgive you. I, I give you my forgiveness. I'm just going to pretend like that didn't even happen. Let's just move on. That's a beautiful word, and it's something we all need, and it's at the heart of the gospel, right? God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners desperately needed forgiveness that we couldn't earn or deserve, Christ died for us. Now, as we think this morning about a Paul's on-the-spot, impromptu sermon to the synagogue audience in Antioch in Acts 13, we're going to see the core of that message is found in verses 38-39, where Paul says, Through him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man Savior, uh, uh, he came from heaven, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, lived a perfect righteous life, died for everything that could keep Jack Mitchell out of heaven, everything that could keep Linda Kinney out of heaven, everything that could keep Krista Bowles out of heaven, and much more importantly, everything that could keep Brad McCoy out of heaven. And then he rose again from the dead. Uh, about six months ago, I was kind of thinking about Puebla, you know, and, and what, what was that contraption we took with us to Puebla clay, that kind of that gospel Rubik's cube? The E-cube, the Evangel cube. Well, I gave one to Cooper, who just turned four years old, and he's messing around with it. And, you know, you, you, you go uh, through the... Uh, uh, gospel, and you go to the empty tomb, and I kind of did it for him in English and did it for him in Spanish, and when we got to the empty tomb, I said, and then he came alive again, and then about an hour later, I could see him playing with that, and he turned around to the empty tomb, and he said, and then he came alive again, it was like a four-year-old kid's going, really was processing, this cat was dead, and then he came alive again, it was like incredible, you know? Uh, through him, that Jesus Christ, not Buddha, Muhammad, Billy Graham, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, or Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, through him, a person, the person of the Savior and his work, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, you guys are all New Testament Greek scholars out there. How are we going to describe that Y-O-U term? That's not a singular, that's a plural. That means all y'all. And through him, everyone who believes that and in English is usually a plus sign. Brad and Debbie are going to come to something. But quite often in Greek, the, the and a chi is an ascensive chi, it's an equal sign. 
through Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, offered to you. That equals, in other words, through Him, His perfect life, His perfect, complete, atoning sacrifice for your sins in His literal bodily resurrection. Through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things that could possibly keep us from going to heaven that have, have caused enmity between us and God. So we're going to focus on, on forgiveness and think about what that means and how it relates certainly to the gospel and to our Christian lives today as we go to the city of Antioch and Pisidia. But let's pray first for um, our teachability to God's word as is our custom and, and also for our peace officers, our firefighters, and our active military. And uh, David Demerson, pray for us in that direction, would you? Amen. Thank you, David. Um, to warm up our capacity for abstract thought and just as a public service, I mean, good night. Tuesday of this week is going to be September. Is that possible, Savannah? September of 2015 in Gerald. Didn't we just do Christmas? Didn't we just do Relay for Life? Man, it goes by fast. So we can kind of see the end of the year. And so I don't usually use puns, but it's a special day for everybody, I guess. Four puns to help prepare TV efforts for the end of 2015. Okay, kids, what goes, oh, 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 that'd be Santa Claus when he's walking backwards. I was going to say for Christmas 2015, but that would have given that one away, so he didn't do it. What nationality is Santa Claus? North Polish. He's North Polish. You'll use these. You'll use these. Santa Zell started a bowling team. And we're given the name, the subordinate clauses. In the last one, a man who feared Santa Claus was diagnosed as being severely claustrophobic. He's afraid of Santa Claus. Okay, our passage uh, this morning, as quite often happens, uh, has a little half and a big half. We're going to look at the important setting. This is uh, really the first major gospel preaching in uh, Asia Minor. Today we call it the country of Turkey as Paul and Barnabas go from near the coast up into the center, south center of modern Turkey to a city called Antioch in the area, near the area of Pisidia. And then we're going to see the big half, verses 15 through 43, uh, Paul's impromptu sermon. And I've told James this many times, and I tell everybody, all the young guys in ministry I meet, you got to be ready to preach for, and I, you won't believe I tell them this, for five minutes, for 15 minutes, for 30 minutes, or an hour with no notice. There's no excuse. In my opinion, there's no excuse for any Christian not to be able to share for five or ten minutes just on the gospel, on their testimony and how to, how to receive Christ. But for those of us who have been called to vocational ministry, there's no excuse not to be ready. Just give me a venue and I'm there, right? Uh, this hasn't happened in a while, but uh, when the civic clubs were in full bloom and they're slowly dying, because for some of whatever reason the 30s and 40s don't want to plug into uh, civic clubs, and you know I think it's kind of unfortunate myself, but uh, there are exceptions. But uh, for the first 15 years I was here, 20 years I was here, uh, in the the uh, Rotary Club would have a real speaker lined up. Uh, you know they meet at the Simmons Center for lunch once a month. And a couple different times, their real speaker with qualifications and topics people were interested in couldn't make it at the last minute. You know who they'd call like at 11.15 and say, hey, 
we need somebody to talk to us for 20 minutes, you know. And we had a real speaker, but she can't come. Would you come, you know? Uh, and you know what? I never said no. I'm not going to say no. Now I do Christian, I'm a Christian minister. I'm going to mention Jesus, even at the Rotary Club. And if that's more than, if that's a bridge too far, <laughs> you know, which is, I always wonder why they never invited me back, but, uh, but I think that's really important. We've got a, if, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, you've got a story to tell, and you ought to be ready to tell, especially when they tee it up for you. So we're going to see one verse about the setting and the rest of the content about Paul's impromptu ser- a sermon, no-notice sermon, uh, him being called to say something, the content and the consequence. Look at verse um, 14, uh, the setting, the important setting of this passage. Uh, but going on from Perga, and we've got to stop there, Jack. Going on from Perga, and as you know, Perga is oops, right about there. Okay, First missionary journey started at Antioch of Syria. They went across the Cyprus. They went to the port. They go 10, 15 miles inland. Then John Mark decides to go home, and Paul and Barnabas proceed from there. So notice, go back to verse 13 of this chapter. Now Paul and his companions, Barnabas and Mark, put out the sea from Paphos, there that um, port on the western side of the island of Cyprus, and they came to Perga after stopping at the port uh, and then going inland in Pamphylia. But John, John Mark, Mark, the gospel author, left them and went back to Jerusalem where his mommy was. But going on, that's important. You know what? Uh, people come and go and trends come and go, but the ministry continues and uh I've got no plans to leave uh, this week, but sometimes the longer I stay, some people say, what are we going to do, you know? And uh, trust me, uh, the TBF, as long as God has a place for her, will go on just fine without Brad McCoy or Dale Corbin or Debbie Corbin or Steve Skinner. I, I don't want you to leave. Don't leave. If you leave, let me know, too. I, it, I hate to have the people disappear, you know. But uh, I know they're somewhere, you know. But uh, it goes right on. So I'm sure Paul and Barnabas are uh, saddened by John leaving, John Mark leaving. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And that's important to say Pisidian Antioch because Pisidian Antioch's there. And the church they left from, the city they left from initially was Antioch of Syria. So you want to keep those cities straight. It's like Paris. Where's Paris located? That's right. There's a Paris. I think there's another one somewhere too, right? But yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see in this first missionary journey today. We're gonna go from Perga up to Antioch, and this is where Paul is gonna do his impromptu message. But then we're gonna go to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby and preach the gospel. Then he's gonna go visit those cities, go back to the coast, and sail directly home. Paul and Barnabas will do that. So we'll see that the next couple of weeks, uh, Lord willing. Uh, but here's the problem: to get from Elliot, watch this. To get from Perga. To Antioch, you gotta cross something. And it's called the Taurus Mountain Range. And some people have said, that may be part of the reason Mark decided to leave. He was afraid of heights, you know, and I get that. So it wasn't easy necessarily to get the gospel out. It never has been. So the idea is gonna be easy, and everybody's gonna like you if you do this thing right. This doesn't line up with reality. Now, notice what happens in verse 14. So, moving from Perga, over the mountains, they go to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath, that's Saturday, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So they're good Jewish guys who have trusted Jesus Christ, 
And that's the setting where first major gospel penetration in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. We are in a synagogue. Why in the world would Paul start in a synagogue? What are you doing in a synagogue? Bar mitzvahs? Yeah. Yeah, it's where the Old Testament people of God would meet to worship God on Saturday, not Sunday. Why, why didn't they meet on Sunday? Old Testament mandated Saturday. That's the day God rested, not because he was tired, but because he was finished with creation. But then we had this huge paradigm shift after the resurrection. What happened? The Jewish believers suddenly realized, you know what? Old covenant, new covenant, seventh day Sabbath, first day of the week, the day Jesus was resurrected. That's the day we're going to set aside in a special way. But Paul's talking to these folks who most of them have never heard of Jesus or maybe have heard some slander about this guy that claimed to be a prophet who was killed by the Jewish and the Roman establishment in Jerusalem. So, boom, we're at the synagogue. Now, let's look at the impromptu sermon, verses 15 through 43. First, the call to say a word or two. After reading, or after the reading of the Law and the Prophets from the Old Testament Scriptures and the synagogue service on the Sabbath in Antioch of Pisidia, the synagogue officials sent to them, Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Uh, when visiting dignitaries came to town in small synagogues, it wasn't unusual for them to say, hey, you may know something we need to hear. Tell us about it. Uh, now, how would they have known that Paul and Barnabas were dignitaries? They both wore big uh, name tags that said, I'm a VIP, very important person. That's how everybody knew, right? No, they didn't wear name tags. Uh, there's probably a couple things. You know, Paul was a rabbi, was a distinguished rabbi, uh, and so when he went to synagogue, he may have worn uh, clothing that indicated that out of respect in the same way that PhDs get to wear certain regalia at graduation ceremonies, and more than the average person would get to wear. That's possible. If nothing else, his yarmulke would have been marked as a rabbi's yarmulke, and that's probably all he had room to pack anyway. He couldn't pack quite as good as Ken and Carol, but I'm sure he packed very well and didn't need to use the, the baggage in the back of the plane. He could just kind of gate check it, right? Um, it's also possible. I mean, Paul grew up near here. He's a, a maybe 100 miles. He grew up 100 miles uh, east of here, so it's possible they just knew him from some of the interaction they would have had. Plus, he was pretty famous as a Christian persecutor just a few years ago before things changed. So there's several different reasons, or maybe they just, when they just came in, they came in early, and then, you know, when people come in early, first they get the coffee, and then they get the bulletin, and, you know, somebody real friendly like Debbie Corbin or Julie Demerson walked up and said, hey, you know, it's good to have you here, and what's your name, Paul, and what's your name, Barnabas, okay, well, where are you come from? Well, we come from, so it's possible he just introduced themselves, you know, personally before, during a fellowship time before. But whatever it was, these guys stood out, and they were asked, if you have a word of exhortation, you know, say it. And Paul said, you know, I wish I'd had time to prepare something. Why would you call me at 11.15? you got a real speaker. You want me to be there in 45 minutes? You know what I always say the first time I go? How many people? How long you want me to talk? And tell me about them. There's a bunch of geeky, middle-aged white guys. I'm gonna, I'm probably not going to take the top ten list, okay? If it's a trendier crowd, we'll do what we can do, right? Uh, yeah, let's look at the content here. Uh, he's going to talk about three things in the in the content of his message. He's going to talk about uh, God's preparation for the coming of Christ in the Old Testament. They would have been very familiar with the scriptures in that area, but had not focused on the Messiah yet. 
Then he's going to present Jesus as the perfect Savior, S-A-S, stands for substitutionary atoning sacrifice, what you owed God, Jesus paid for on the cross. L-B-S-R stands for what? Literal, means it happened literally, right? Bodily, means it wasn't just his spirit appeared, his spirit went into his body, and his body was supernaturally transformed. Uh, supernatural, you can't reproduce this in a laboratory. You can't do this uh, in the chemistry lab. Uh, resurrection. And then we're going to have the conclusion about forgiveness through faith in Him. So let's look at the content and first the preparation. God's preparation for the coming of the Messiah. This is what you want to tell people in Jewish synagogue. Jesus has come. He's the Messiah. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who fear God and want to know more about the God of Israel, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and made the people great in number. They weren't all that great spiritually yet, <laughs> but they went from 70 to over a million, right? During their stay in the land of Egypt. That's a pretty benign way of referring to 400 years of slavery, but he's, he's summarizing, right? And with an uh, uh, uplifted arm, he led them out from it. The Exodus, right? And then, watch this, verse 18, for a period of about 40 years, he, God, put up with them in the wilderness. Is that a fair way to describe stiff-necked Israel during that 40-year period? Yeah. I mean, they're not very far beyond the, the Exodus. They're already complaining about Moses and God. They don't like the way this thing is happening. Somebody doesn't like everything, right? If you had a critical mass, it's a bit exciting. But uh, So this is pretty interesting. For a period of about 40 years, God put up with them, the whining, the complaining, etc. When he had, at the end of the 40-year exodus, and followed by Joshua conquering the land, and then uh, the follow-up of that, when he had destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which together took about 450 years. Uh... You know what? The first seminal statement in the Bible, I'm convinced Genesis 1 through 11 is scripture, it's accurate, but it's preamble. The story of the Bible starts with Abraham, the call of Abraham. Some really unique things are happening in Genesis 1 through 11, and it's all important. It's all scripture. But the, I mean, we get 14 chapters gay on Joseph. We get two chapters on the creation of the universe in Genesis, which is being stressed. It's called the law of proportion. So the story really begins, the story of salvation history begins in Genesis 12 where God says to a guy in Iraq, have you ever heard of Iraq? It's in the paper all the time. A guy in Iraq, Abram, was told that God had chosen him and even though he was old and his wife and he were too old to have children, they were going to have a child and through him all the nations of the world be blessed. And Abraham was promised a land tract, we call it, Canaan or Israel, a seed, a progeny that would end up with the Messiah and a blessing. Okay. And so he's going back to that. You know, God of this father, the God of this people, Israel chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, put them in the Egyptian uh, incubator. So we went from 70 to over a million. Then because they were insubordinate and could not take the promised land in that spiritual status, discipline that generation for 40 years, the second generation began the conquest, and ultimately, verse 20, after these things, after they had conquered and more or less controlled the land, 
He ruled them through regional leaders called judges until the last judge in the first prophet, uh, capital P, in a unique line sense, Samuel the prophet came. Then they asked for a king. Remember, who was supposed to be the king of Israel during the period of the judges? That would be God himself. All the other nations had kings, but God said, I'll be your king, okay? He is you know, obey the Mosaic legislation, everything will be fine. That, that was a constitution uh, for them as a nation. They didn't do that. They looked around at all the other nations and said, hey, all the other nations have kings. We want to be like everybody else. Okay? And so God gave them a king. Who was their king? Saul. Not, not, he turned out pretty bad. Started well, but started out bad. Saul, David, and Solomon, as you know, the first three. Uh, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Verse 22, after he had removed, after God had removed him, Saul, he raised up, who's the next king? King David. And he's really, really important because it turns out Abraham was told that through his progeny would come the Savior. And it turned out Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, 12 tribes, but it'd be the tribe of what? Judah, right? Through which the Messiah would come. And then we're told it's going to be the family of David through Solomon. So it gets really specific. So it's really, excuse me, really important to get David in this brief Old Testament survey as God's preparing the world for the coming of Christ. So then after Saul was a disaster, God raised up David to be their king, concerning whom God testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. I'm telling you folks, all doesn't necessarily mean all without exception. Did David always, 100% of the time, ontologically, perfectly obey the will of God? Somebody say, yeah. Please. says he did all. All can mean all without any exception. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that includes you, and more importantly, me. (laughs) Or it can mean all without any major exception. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but not every individual act of evil. Uh, God is so gracious when he looks at his children. David is a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. But those things don't characterize David. When David is lying, adulterating, is that a word, and murdering, or setting up a death, He's concealing whose he is. I'm pretty sure David was really a believer. I'm pretty sure David's in heaven. God looks at the synthesis, the overall scope of his life. James. James has a heart, man. He's got a heart that's as pure as the driven snow. Sometimes you have to have him with details. But he's got a great heart. <laughs> and uh, whatever they're teaching you in Hillsdale is helping James. You're doing great. but And you always did. But... Uh, you know, God is so gracious uh, in Luke at the beginning of the Last Supper, knowing these guys are all going to scatter like chickens. This paraphrase, Jesus says, I've really been looking forward to this last time to have a meal with you guys. And then in John 17, when he prays for him, he says, I don't pray, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for these guys. These guys left everything and they followed me and they've been faithful and they love me. And he's going, those guys, those losers? I mean, we typically, preachers, pick out all the stupid things they do, and they do a lot of stupid things. It's almost as bad as me or you, you know. But God looks at not just your standing righteously, but the overall fruit of your life. And he says, we all know David had some problems and issues, and there were real 
there was real negative fallout from his inability to obey certain portions of the Word of God, like a very dysfunctional family. Would you say he had a pretty dysfunctional family? Can you say Absalom? Right? But God is not papering over the sins. He's not hoping you didn't read 2 Samuel. He knows you've read 2 Samuel, right? He knows. He's just saying in general, you know. So I would say, uh, you know what? Uh, it's kind of like uh, disciplining your kids. Save, save it up for the big stuff. Don't just pay. There's always something you can criticize about little kids. Always. Save the criticism and the correction for the big stuff. You know, look at your kids the way God looks at his kids. He's trying to find stuff to like. And David, a liar, a murderer, an adulterer, uh, a guy who frankly could not teach uh, Sunday school in most Southern Baptist churches, right? And probably with cause, right? Got a bad reputation. God says he's a man after my own heart. My, my, own, my own heart. Almost spit that out. That's pretty good. Now notice what Paul's essentially doing is kind of just setting up and he's not going into all the details and connecting all the dots, but he knows these people in the synagogue know about these prophecies about who the Messiah would be. And rather than putting Jesus in Nazareth, I really should have covered that and just said the Christ or the Savior. They all knew he was going to be born in Bethlehem, and he was going to be a human being, male, Semite, Jew, member of Judah, family of David, born of a virgin. They all knew that. Uh, they knew the time frame he would come. They knew what and why he would do, at least in general. And Paul's just connecting the dots. So he's just kind of saying, hey, God did a lot of stuff to prepare all of this. Now let me present in a little specificity who Jesus is, who the Christ actually is, who the Savior is that God actually sent. He's been here, and he's gone back to heaven. You need to know about it. Look at verse 23. From the descendants of this man. Now what man are we talking about in verse 22? He's after God's own heart. That'd be David. So, guess what? Harmony. David lived in about 1000 BC. So we're jumping. Okay, Betty, we're jumping 1000 years. You see this little space right here in your Bible? Sometimes you have a lot of stuff going on in, in the space between your Bible. There's the end of verse 22. There's the beginning of verse 23. There's a thousand years right there. There is. Because he's talking about David, and then he says, Jeff, from the descendants of this man, David, according to the promise that goes all the way back to Abraham in Iraq, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, who's also the Savior of the world. After John the Baptist had proclaimed before his coming, before the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John the Baptist was completing his ministry before he gets arrested and killed, uh, why didn't God do a miracle for John the Baptist like he did for Peter? Because God's purpose for John the Baptist was different than his purpose for Peter. That's the, that's the simple answer, and it's got the advantage of being true. I think we'll get more details in heaven, but that's, that's what it is. Uh, while John was completing his ministry, according to the time God was going to allow him to do his ministry, he kept saying, uh, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm bombastic and drawing a crowd. But behold, one is coming after me, talking about Jesus, immediately after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brethren, this is Paul talking again to the crowd at the synagogue, which may have been 27 people. It might have been 200. It probably was not thousands. It was teens or maybe a couple hundred at most. A brethren, son, that is, sons of Abraham's family, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those Gentiles among you who fear the God of Israel, who want to know more about him, 
to you the message of this Savior and this salvation has been sent right now. That's why we're here. That's the purpose of our visit here. For, watch out, not everybody buys this. Not everybody accepts this. Not everybody, not everybody believes. Even the ones who saw Jesus didn't all believe. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, both religious and secular, Jewish and Gentile, recognizing neither him, who he was, nor the utterance of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets they studied all the time, and especially in synagogue services, fulfilled these prophecies by condemning him. And though they found no real reason, no ground, no sin in his life for putting him to death, the Roman uh, governor was asked by the Jewish religious officials that he be executed, that Jesus be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But as Cooper said, but then he came alive again, right? But God raised him from the dead. you got to love this. I'm, 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 I'm mindful of uh, Gospel of John chapter 1. Uh, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world did not know him. He came into his own people, but his own people did not know him. But to each individual who does receive him, to them he gave the right to become sons and daughters of God to those who believe in his name. So it's, it's the amazing irony that we've got the creatures killing the creator and thinking they're doing God a favor and doing the ultimate blasphemy, the worst crime in human history, of course. But God raised him from the dead. Verse 31. This is pretty interesting. And then he says, and for many days, he, Jesus, in his resurrected form, and as his body supernaturally transformed, reunited with his spirit, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the, to the people, the, the apostles. And we preach to you the good news, the gospel of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. Then he's going to quote several Old Testament passages, Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16. Some of the commentators, David, suggest that maybe this psalm in Isaiah 53 uh, were part of what was read at the beginning of the service that day. Wouldn't be surprised a bit if that's true. But it doesn't matter. These guys who are listening would have been very familiar with these Old Testament passages. That God, the Father, Jehovah God, uh, has fulfilled his promises through Jesus. He raised up Jesus from the dead after his redemptive death to pay for our sins. As is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, literal bodily supernatural resurrection, no longer for his body to be decaying, or the atoms of his body still be percolating somewhere on planet earth, he has spoken in this way in Isaiah 55. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, Messiah, even better. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not allow your holy one, the Messiah's body, to rot in the grave, to undergo decay. Now watch this. He's comparing David with Jesus and saying David is lesser than Jesus, even though he's his great, 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 great grandfather. For David, look at verse 36. After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. To fall asleep 
is a euphemism for the death of a believer. The body looks like it's asleep. It's not asleep, but it's just a euphemism to describe the death of a believer. And was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. That is, his body underwent decay. And when you go to Israel with us next time we go, the sooner the better. Uh, in fact, the last time we went, one day, our guide put us in a situation where we could go see the tomb of David, which isn't really the tomb of David, but you pay a guy a shekel. He's got a long beard, and he's got this coffin covered up. He says, that's the tomb of David. So, okay, very good. What's the next thing? So you have authentic sites, you have traditional sites, and then you have money-making bogus sites, and that's one of them, but the Jewish guy needs the money, so, you know, you give him a shekel and everybody's happy. But I wasn't crazy about us going there, but it was beyond my control. We won't go there next time. We'll just go to the real ones. But uh, you've got to watch out, right? You know, George Washington slept here kind of thing. How do you know that? Um, so David, after he died, was buried, and his body continues to, to decay, waiting the ultimate resurrection. His spirit has left the body, but his body's decaying. But, verse 37, he whom God raised up uniquely, the Messiah, did not, his body did not undergo decay. So he's emphasizing the person and work of Jesus here. Um, let me suggest, in, and he probably went into more detail than Luke records. When you look at Paul's sermons in Acts, it's obviously he's summarizing. He's not trying to give a verbatim complete transcript. But go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me suggest that the person of Jesus as the God-man, perfectly righteous Savior and his death and resurrection, that's the gospel. At least that's the gospel in Paul's mind. That's the gospel according to the New Testament. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15, and if you don't know where this passage is, please make it a note, circle it, have it, you know, we got Tetelestai uh, tattooed all over, all kinds of TBFers all over the world. Now James has got it too, if you can't remember that term. Uh, but I don't have any tattoos, but if I had one, I'd probably put Tetelestai and uh, maybe John 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Because that's what the gospel is. He says, let me remind you what the gospel is. You know, the first thing I, I covered when I went to Corinth the first time, which I believe, which you believed, unless Jesus wasn't really risen from the dead, then it's worthless. But if it's really happened, really true, and it did, it's the whole core of everything. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the gospel for you. It'll never change. This will never change. Okay? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, and he was buried. Just like David died and was buried. Only totally different. Because number two, and he was raised, literal bodily supernatural resurrection, on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared to the apostles and others. Go back to Acts 13. That's what Paul has basically just said in a nutshell, right? So, you know, the presentation of Paul's impromptu message isn't about Paul's training or his background or his unique exegesis of Ezekiel 40 through 48, he's emphasizing the main thing, the person and work of Jesus. That's where you always end up, at the Kiwanis Club. Uh, you know, I actually got in trouble once for praying at a wedding rehearsal, and I get, apparently the guy was upset that, you know, as a Christian minister, I would pray in Jesus' name at a wedding rehearsal. And I said, it's even going to get worse than that at the wedding. I'm going to mention John 3.16 there, you know. So um, I guess they wanted a Hindu wedding. I don't know, but uh, no, maybe he did. But... I don't do that. I mean, come on. Uh, but that's what that was. Yeah, so uh, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect, righteous life. Here, Are you following my acronyms? 
Plus R for me is just a shorthand version of rights, perfect righteousness. Capital R is important. The plus is perfect righteousness. There's a perfect righteous life. Substitutionary atoning sacrifice. That's what's happening on the cross, validated by the resurrection. Literal, really happened. You went in a time machine, you'd see it. Bodily, it involved his body, not just his body decaying and somebody thought they saw or felt the spirit of Jesus. Supernatural, you can't reproduce this resurrection. Okay? That's what we're talking about. Not just resuscitation. Resurrection means you never die again. You're beyond that. Now, Paul gets to the uh, heart of what he's trying to say. I'm convinced in verses 38-39. He's talked about the way God prepared history to bring Jesus on the scene. How he gave us Jesus as the perfect Savior. And now he says this in verse 38-41. through He says, Therefore, now, a good Bible study lesson, Bailey, is whenever you see therefore, you look back to see what it's there for, right? Therefore, in light of all that God did in the Old Testament to arrange history to get Jesus here, in light of who Jesus is and what he did, his death is the basis for eternal life, right? Now you need to know this. Let it be known to you. And that's plural. That's all y'all. Brethren. He's calling... That's brethren in the sense sons of Abraham, as he defined earlier. Usually when he says brethren, he's talking about other Christians. But these guys aren't Christians yet. That through him, through, through who? David? Paul? Through, through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, probation is proclaimed to you. It's not probation, it's salvation. Okay, It's not just the sins you committed up to the point you believe, it's all the sins he died for. All your sins were future when Jesus died in 33 AD. All the sins he died for are forgiven for you as far as your standing before God when you trust in him. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In other words, through him, everyone, equal rights amendment. Kylie, this is God's equal rights amendment. Whosoever will may come. (laughs) Whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That through him, everyone who believes, men, women, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, even people in Oklahoma, right? Everyone who believes is freed from all things, any charges, any uh, thing that could be used against us to keep us out of heaven, from which you couldn't be freed from the law of Moses. You ready, Sonia? The Old Testament law is not... A, uh, a ladder we can climb to God. It is what? A mirror. Why do we need a mirror? It shows we need a Savior. Yeah, go to Romans chapter 3. You know, Jonathan Edwards, I think, is the guy who said, if you, if you read uh, the Bible like you should, your Bible should open to Romans 3 and 4. And what he meant was, you should spend so much time reading Romans 3 and 4 uh, just we kind of have a permanent crease in it, but I really like uh, Romans three twenty through three twenty four. Uh, Romans one eighteen through three twenty is talking about the problem, the universal sin problem. So verse twenty is the last verse talking about the universal sin and inability of any human being to make themselves right before God. Uh, three twenty one through six um, thirty. Nine, which I think is the last verse, uh, whatever it is, whatever the last verse uh, of chapter six is, is talking about justification. But watch this. Look at Romans three twenty. 
by the works of the law. Now, he says this after just condemning all of humanity as we're all at our worst, break our own standards, much less God's, and we're all at our worst, uh, have no desire to do the right thing. That's the real us spiritually. We're spiritually dead, uh, guilty with any, no ability to save ourselves. And yet, many Old Testament Jews were thinking they could be saved by being good Jews and wrapping themselves in the Mosaic Law, which wasn't designed to save. It wasn't a, a light or a mirror. But he says, and not only are we all uh, accountable to God for our sin, we can't save ourselves by the work of the law because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh, no human being can be justified in God's sight. But through the law, the mirror function comes the knowledge of sin. But now, but now, in light of our inability and our guilt, apart from the law or any set of rules or regulations, we're not saved by goodness or rules or religion, the righteousness of God has been manifested consistent with the Old Testament prophets and law. I'm talking about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, Olga. The righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of the Roman Catholic Church or the Pope or Dallas Seminary or Brad McCoy or Chuck Swindoll or uh, Joel Olstein or whatever great preacher you want to think about today. Uh, talking about the righteousness of God. How do I access that? Through faith. In whom? In Jesus Christ. For all who believe. There's no distinction. We all need it. We've all sinned. It comes from the glory of God. We can't fix it. But all who believe are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, the sacrificial, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Boom. Wow. Out of here. Go back to Acts chapter 13. I just got to believe Paul loves to get to this part of his message. I mean, you got to tell people, you know, that uh, they're no darn good and they can't fix it themselves. But that's the bad news that presupposes the good news. As Nicole will tell you, when you're doing persuasive speaking at Cameron and you give a persuasive speech on a question of policy or on a question of value, you've got to paint a black picture of the problem and the blacker the picture of your problem, right, Lori? Go back, deep back in your memories. I, I know you as a, probably a defensive mechanism you try to blot out your experience uh, at Cameron in the speech class. But yeah, the, the blacker you paint the uh, problem, the, the, the blacker the picture you paint of the problem, the more people want a solution, right? And the Bible paints a very black picture, and it happens to be true. We're just no darn good in our sin nature, and we can't even save ourselves. But i got to believe Paul loves to turn the light on that dark background. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, saved the world. Forgiveness of sins. You can be forgiven as far as the east is from the west. A man after my own heart. Why, why could God say that David is a man after his own heart? Because David was a forgiven sinner. That's why. He was saved by faith in the promised Messiah. We're saved by faith in the provided Savior. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from anything that could be held against you. Now, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And we know that, like in Job, Satan goes up uh, and accesses God and says, Hey, yeah, Job does everything you want him to do, but he just does it because he's been so blessed. You know, you take away his blessings, he'll curse curse you to your face. And just, you know, you can just throw a lightning bolt at him, you know. And uh, Satan loves to accuse the brethren. And sometimes he maybe whispers in your ear or your supra-ego whispers in your ear. I'm no darn good or whatever. But... Uh, you know what, I think you're going to be a happier person if you're a believer by, by looking at stuff to like about your spouse and about your kids 
and about your country and about the police and about your professors at Cameron and even about your pastor and even about yourself. And you got issues, you deal with it biblically, you confess it, you forsake it, you isolate it, you move on. It's going to affect your fellowship with God. But I think Paul loves the bottom line is, through him, everyone who believes is freed from anything that could possibly keep you out of heaven. And the law of Moses could never do that for you. Now, some people say, that's Paul's gospel. That's Paul's gospel. The other disciples didn't believe that. Let's go back to what Peter said back in chapter 10. This is Peter, not Paul. And um, this is uh, at a Roman soldier's house, not a Jewish synagogue. But if you look at uh, Acts 10.43, after Peter does some similar stuff to what Paul just did, just talking about the background for the coming of Jesus and the person and work of Jesus, here's Peter's bottom line in Acts 10.43, of him, and the hymn's Jesus again. It's not H-Y-M-N, it's H-I-M-M, capital H for Jesus. Of him, all the prophets, all the Old Testament prophets, Bear witness that through his name, his person and work, everyone who believes in him receives what? There's that name again. That's that word. There's that beautiful word. The psychologists say Steve is one of the most beautiful words in English language to Steve. I've never really liked that name. That's why I call him Stevie, because I don't, I prefer Stevie. But to be forgiven of our sins because of the grace of God and the work of Jesus, that's the that's the New Testament gospel. That's what Peter said. That's what Paul says. Go back to chapter 13. So forgiveness through Jesus Christ, all who believe. And then he says, but this is not universalism. Don't, don't you blow this off. Don't you ignore it. Don't you reject it because there's severe consequences for those who don't believe. Therefore take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets, Habakkuk 1.5, may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I'm accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Paul realizes there's a certain risk in preaching the gospel, because some people aren't going to believe it, and some people are going to vilify you for believing it. And that happens to this day. You need to remember that, because even though we're going to have a very happy ending today, as we move to uh, the consequence in a minute. I forgot about these cool PowerPoint slides i got to show you. Uh, not everybody's happy in Antioch in the synagogue in a minute. This is a real basic bare bones diagram, but so many people think, Christians just think we keep the rules better than everybody else, and so that's one reason they don't like us. But circumcision, baptism, catechism, ordination, dedication, nomination cannot save. The only thing it can save is the person and work of Christ. That's the basis of salvation We receive that work through faith, which is the empty hand receiving the work of Christ. But to the one who does not work but believes on Christ, who justifies the ungodly, the ungodly person's faith in Christ is reckoned as righteousness. There's what Peter said of him. Everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. Here's what Jesus said. This this is John commenting on John John the uh, Apostle commenting on John 3.16. The one who believes in him is not judged. But Paul's warning here, take heed, don't you blow this, don't you miss this. The flip side is the one who does not believe has been judged already, stands already judged. They're already in their sin. 
because they haven't believed in the name of the monogenes, the unique, only one of his kind, Son of God. For it's like John 3.36, which you don't hear people quote much anymore. The one who, and I'm, I'm, uh, using the generic there for the masculine generic, not the, not the he who believes, but the one, male or female, who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the orge to theu, the wrath of God abideth on him. Look at the consequence of this sermon, verse 42 and 43, and it's really pretty neat, but like I said, this is just part of the story. The story goes on, give them a week, and most of the people in the synagogue and the town are going to turn on Paul and Barnabas just real quick. So I've always said uh, to the elders and, the, and the, the youth ministers, hey, in the ministry, when things are going good, don't get too excited because they're never as good as they seem. On the other hand, when things are going bad, don't get too bummed out because they're never as bad as they seem. So I think Paul probably figures this out because it looks it's, it looks all good here. Verse 42 as Paul and Barnabas were going out at the end of the service of the synagogue, the people, several of the people, just the, the average guy in the pew there, kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Come back and tell us more about the Christ. We want to hear it. But tell us about Isaiah 53. Does that have anything to do with it? That'd be cool. Verse 43. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews... And of the God-fearing Gentile proselytes, God-fearers who are interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who would have attended synagogue services, followed Paul and Barnabas, followed them because they wanted to interact with them. Apparently, they had come to faith. Look at this. Hard to believe. I don't think Paul's telling them to continue the grace of God unless they've received the grace of God. He told them everyone who believes is forgiven, and some of these people have already believed. They didn't have to sing just as I am 19 times. When the Spirit of God works, you believe, you know. When the meeting had broken up, the, some of the individuals following him, and he's talking to them, they're talking to them on the spot. So that looks pretty good. The bad news is next week the things turn, because this is a minority, but it's significant, isn't it? Let's close this way. Take this to heart. Um, you know, my challenge would just be, you know, respond from the depth of your soul to the good news about the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ. If you've never received it, today can be the day of salvation. You can't earn your own salvation by good works. And everybody needs it uh, because we've all sinned. Like I like to say, at our worst we break our own standards, much less God's. Um, I like to say it this way, no one is so good they don't need salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. No one's so bad they can't have it. Right? Uh, last week we talked about the fact God's no less gracious to sinners that get off the reservation than he is to people who get saved in the front end. But forgiveness, man, it's, it's the most wonderful thing. Uh, I remember I had the privilege of leading a lady to Christ over the phone at Park City's Baptist Church one night when I was working at the switchboard during my seminary career. And uh, she was pretty desperate and shared the gospel. And she prayed and she was crying. And I said, how do you feel? And she said, lighter. Lighter. L-I-G-H-T. I think she was saying the burden of guilt and shame had been placed where it was paid for. And I, that really that really blew my mind. It was wonderful. Uh, for most of us who are believers, I would say uh, by focusing on our forgiveness, and we ought to, we ought to revel in it. We ought to reflect on it more deeply 
uh, as we move through our Christian life, uh, forgiven people should be forgiving people, right? We should we should kind of bend over backward to get along. Uh, when we do baptisms, you know, I always ask the candidates to cross their arms in front of their chest and hold their nose. Why do we do that, Elliot? A couple reasons. Why do I want you to hold your nose when you got baptized? You don't want water in your nose. That's very important. But number two, that gives me something to hold on to. But I, And so when you get baptized, you basically hold your nose and lean way over backward. And some people who want to float like David, I had to kind of push him down there. You're very buoyant, man, just so you'll know. wasn't easy to get him down there. But, uh, yeah, I always said that to get along with other Christians in the church, April, you've got to use the baptism technique. To get along with these people, look at this group. And look at that. It's a pretty scary group, isn't it? You are called to love those people as a Christian. Okay? How are you going to do that? You've got to hold your nose and lean way over backward a lot of the time. I'm just telling you. It's called the baptism technique. But why not? We've been forgiven so much. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to never take for granted and more regularly reflect on very consciously the wonders of your grace and the forgiveness we have because of the work of Jesus Christ in your grace and calling, converting, and uh, conferring the merits of Christ to us as believing sinners. Uh, we pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart said, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've blown it. I need forgiveness. I need righteousness. I can't manufacture it. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. I trust in him alone. I receive him alone for my salvation. And I pray you might be glorified by regenerating that individual and giving them the gift of eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.